0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Cody and I were back there just going, man, it's just amazing. Just the quality of music in this place. And being a guy with no musical talent or ability whatsoever, it's a mystery to me. You know, it's it's like watching magic. I don't know how they even do it and what they're doing, really. I, it's just, it's a mystery. But all I know is that when when they do it, God lifts my heart and causes me to fall before Him in worship. Isn't that awesome? That's what it's about. I was talking to this dude from Mexico the other day. And uh, in Mexico, you know, they grow up playing soccer. And I don't know, American football came up and I said you know, do you watch American football? And he said, no, not really. I don't really understand it. I never played it. I don't know the rules. I don't know anything about it. Which made me wonder, suppose you uh, grew up in another place and you had no idea whatsoever what American football was all about. That's easy for some of you to imagine because that's kind of where you are right now. But But imagine that. And you and your friends, you got a couple of friends and y'all get together and you go, you know, let's do some exploring about what this American football thing is. And let's go talk to some football players. And so you go out and you meet with some offensive linemen, and they're all like 6'5", 300 pounds, can bench press a truck, and your buddy goes out, and he meets with running backs, and they're all about 5'10", and they got legs like quarter horses, you know, and then the other guy goes out, and he meets with a bunch of wide receivers, and they're all about 6'2", 180, and they're they're tall and, and long and elegant like a gazelle, you know, and then you all get back together, and you say, okay, what's an American football player like? And you have a big argument because you think, well, they're big and powerful. He's like, no, they're not. They're they're short and quick and agile. No, they're not. They're long and graceful. They're all of those things. Because here's what happens in football. The position determines the shape. And church is exactly like that. The, the, The position that God has called us to play within the body of Christ determines the shape. And so every one of us is shaped for God's purpose. And we started talking about this last time, so let's get our Bibles out, let's turn our devices on. Romans chapter 12, last time we talked about how God shapes us. Now the overarching theme of this, uh, of this passage, Romans chapter 12, it's all about mercy, it's all about grace. But in order for us to understand mercy and grace, we have to understand the value of the other person. Because when I value you the way God values me, then I give to you what Jesus gave to me, which is mercy and grace. And so he says, you know, don't think too highly of yourself. Um, And uh, the backside of that is don't think less of other people because they're different from you, because we're all different. We all have different roles. We all have a different purpose. And so last time we talked about how God shapes us. You know, He shapes us according to the position He wants us to play. And so we have bents and backgrounds. We're all born with certain bents. You're born that way. You know, if you have more than one child, you know they're not all born the same way. They're not a little blank slate that you can write whatever you want to on. They come with certain passions and inclinations and desires, and they're going to go a certain way, right? And in addition to that, we have these backgrounds that begins to shape us, the good, the bad, uh, the the mundane, and all of that begins to... to sort of direct that bent, uh, instill in us a sense of, of history and value and how we see ourselves and how we see other people. You know, I said, we don't live in the past, but the past lives in us because our background very much does shape us. And then when we come to Christ, we're given this spiritual gift, so we got the bents and backgrounds. That's natural. Everybody's got that. And then when you come to faith in Christ, you're given the spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift helps us to find our place, to understand our purpose, and our passions are in line with our purpose. So God shapes us for His purpose. And we see this in Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 3 and following. And so it says this For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think more highly than he ought to think, highly of himself than he ought to think. And so that's the central idea of Romans 12. Don't think so much of yourself, don't think less of others. But to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted, and that word allotted means designed and assigned. God has allotted to each person a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, just like on a football team, not everybody plays the same position. And it's really brilliant if you think about it. You know, we read this having read it, but the inspiration that came to Paul to see the correlation between how the church works and how a body works is really awesome. That we are more like, that's really a better illustration, a better analogy Than a football team because the body is so much more complex and so he says we are the body of Christ we are the physical representation of Jesus to this world and just like a body has all these different parts we have all these different parts and we all have a different function so we here are many are, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another and so every one of us is unique and every one of us is incomplete God designed us that way he designed you uniquely and he designed you to be incomplete that way you need me and I need you And every single one of you is better than me than something, in, in some way. Okay? But the whole point of this is to get you to see the value of the other person. When we value each other the way Jesus values us, then we can treat one another with the same grace and mercy that Jesus gave to us. And so that's the point of Romans 12. But he is talking about spiritual gifts, and so let's dive a little deeper into spiritual gifts because one of the most important things you can do as a believer is discover who you are and God, why God made you that way. You need to discover the one who made you, and then you need to discover why He made you that way. And so let's talk about spiritual gifts, you, you know, and to do that, we're going to have to get a little broader picture of it because there, this isn't the only list of spiritual gifts in the Bible. There are at least two in first Corinthians chapter 12, and then there's another in Ephesians chapter four, and they all differ slightly in some way. So let's back up and let's get a big picture of this. Okay. So the big picture of spiritual gifts and to do that, put your finger on Romans 12 and let's go over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 verses four and six. 1 Corinthians 12:4 through 6 is like the Rosetta Stone of spiritual gifts. You know what I mean when I say Rosetta Stone? Uh back in 1799, Na- Napoleon's army went into Egypt and they discovered the antiquities of Egypt. And one of the things they discovered near a village called Rosetta was this stone. And in those days, Pharaoh used to carve his decrees in stone. But what made the Rosetta Stone unique was it was a single decree carved by the Pharaoh in three different languages. The top language was Egyptian hieroglyphics. The second language was Egyptian demotic script. And the third was ancient Greek. Prior to the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, archaeologists and historians and scientists could not read hieroglyphics, you know, and so they would come into Egypt, they'd see all this stuff written on all these old temples and walls, and it was a mystery to them. But now with the Rosetta Stone, they could compare the hieroglyphics with what they knew about Greek, and all of a sudden, it became the code that unlocked the mystery of the pharaohs. Well, in the same way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6 unlocks the mystery of spiritual gifts, okay? And so here's what it says, verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, and that word is charisma. It's where our charismatic brothers get the idea of charismatic gifts. The charisma, but the same spirit. And notice in every case, the gifts were not to create division. They were all assigned through unity. It's the same spirit. The Lord, uh, verse 4. uh, 12 verse 5, and there are a variety of ministries. So you've got a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries. The core of that word is diakonos, it's service. A variety of places to serve uh, and the same Lord. Verse 6, there are a variety of effects. And, and that word at, at its root has the idea of energy, uh, energizes. Um, there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And so from this, we understand that there are three different types of spiritual gifts that are mentioned you have the motivational gifts we'll come back around to that that's Romans chapter 12 the motivational gifts those are the passion gifts those are the gifts that drive us that push us through ministry and then there are the ministry gifts those are the positional gifts those are the gifts that we uh, that we have Uh, that become the vehicle through which we exercise our gift. And then that third is the manifestation gifts. That's the evidence of what Christ is doing in a person's life. So let's start with the manifestation gifts because reading 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7 begins with that list. It says but to each one is given here's the word, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so everything that he says in this list following it are the results or consequences of the gifts being used produced a gift in someone's life. You got it? And so it says, for uh, "...to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another effecting of miracles." and to another, prophecy, and to another, distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. And so you get these various effects that occur as, as we see the exercising of the spiritual gifts, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith, healing, the effecting of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, which I call discernment, various tongues and interpretations of tongues, okay? But here's the key to the manifestation gifts. They are specific to a need, and they're temporary. So that when you receive that gift, maybe you're struggling with a decision, you receive a word of wisdom. Maybe you're wrestling with faith, you receive a word of faith. Maybe you need a miracle, and you receive that miracle that you need. Or maybe you need a point of truth, and so you receive a prophetic word. Those kinds of things. But they're temporary. Now let's talk about the ministry gifts. Uh, looking down, skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now look down at verse 28. And God has appointed, and that word appointed means to set into place. He has ordained, and so these are the gifts that are ordained within the church through which the gifts are used in the church, and they're in order, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And so you have apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healers, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. And when you read that list, you go, what about these miracle gifts like healing and miracles? I mean, we don't see that today, right? Do you know any church that's got the pastor of miracles? You know? What's your job? Well, I'm My name's Warren. I'm the associate pastor of miracles. You know, (laughs) you just don't see that anymore. You're like, so what's going on? Because truthfully, Ephesians gives us a, a list of ministry gifts and it doesn't include them. Why not? Well, let me say this. We need to take a broader view of this thing, okay? And context is critical. This is one thing that we always have to understand when we're we're studying the Bible, when we're interpreting the Bible. There's a context to it. There's a grammatical context. I mean, it's written within the context of the central idea of that guy. For example, in in Romans 12, the central idea of Romans 12 is to be merciful. Everything he said is talking up to that. Romans uh, 1 through 11 is talking about the mercy of God. And now he transitions and he talks about, we are to be merciful as God was merciful to us. So there's the context within that specific discussion, then there's the broader context of the book itself. It's, it's lodged within what God is saying to the people in, in Rome in the book of Romans, but there's the even broader context of the New Testament, and then there's the greater context of the whole Bible. And so as you read the Bible, you read it in context. That means that the truth of that word is derived from what is intended to be said, And so we always want to know what the Bible means before we understand what it means to me. Now, we don't do that. We play Bible roulette, right? And what we do is, God, I need a word today. (laughs) Here's the Bible. I'm going to open it. What's the word? And you point. There it is, you know. That's not the way we do it. There's a context. There's also a historical context, You know, you say, well, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, but He didn't always do things the same way all the time. There were some times when God only did it once. The burning, the burning bush. He spoke to Moses. Uh, He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. You know, Jonah was thrown into the belly of a a large fish. That was a one-off moment, and it's not normal, and it's not normalized. There were other times when God would work a certain way with a certain people at a certain time, and then He would change the methodology. God never changes; He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But His methodology changes. Because there's this thing called progressive revelation as God is dealing with each people as they are to reveal more and more of Himself. And so we see this. Whenever God did a new work, he would often accompany it with signs and wonders, and that's how they knew it was God. They didn't have a Bible to consult. There was no Bible. And so the signs validated the work. But as the work became normalized, the signs and wonders would often trail off. You see this in Moses and Joshua. Uh, with Moses, there are all these signs and wonders, you know. And there's the there's the, the staff that turns into a serpent, there's the ten plagues, there's the parting of the Red Sea, there's the feeding in, of manna in the the wilderness. There's all these signs. And then those signs carried on with Joshua and his ministry. You know, they walked through the Jordan on dry land. They circled Jericho seven times and shouted the wall or 12 times. I can't. How many times did they go around Jericho? I don't know. They walked around it, and then they shout, and the walls fall down. Those miraculous signs. But by the end of the ministry of Joshua, those signs and wonders had begun to trail off. You saw it again in the time of the prophets when God's doing a new work among His people, calling people back to Himself. And so these prophets come, and they're accompanied by signs and wonders to validate the fact that what these guys are saying is coming from something supernatural and more powerful than you. And you see it in the church, you see it in the Gospels, and you see it in the book of Acts. When Jesus comes, it was accompanied by signs and wonders, right? And you see all these people being healed, and people raised from the dead, and all these supernatural acts that that validate the work of Christ that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then with the with the advent of the early church, it, it begins with this miraculous giving of, of the speaking in tongues where, where uh, everybody hears in their own language the Gospel, and there's a reversal of Babel. So at the at the point of pentecost where the holy spirit comes in if you're from france you're here in french if you're from england you're here in english if you're from spain you're here in spanish idios dialectos everyone's own dialect and that's a miracle and those miracles would carry out uh, through the book of acts but as you see acts played out the the signs and wonders began to decrease as the normalization of understanding the gospel increased so that by the end of the book of Acts, there's only a few miracles still occurring. Uh, uh, Paul's bitten by a snake and he survives. There's a guy named Publius that he heals his father on the Isle of Malta. And that's, a, that's about it. In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, as you, as you read these things, the miracles from A.D. 50 to 100 basically played out. So much so that by the end of the book of Acts, you see that Paul and those guys are wrestling with stuff, and they're getting hammered, and they're having to deal with those things without any obvious supernatural movement of the Spirit. God's still miraculously working in their lives, but He's not doing it so much through signs and wonders. To the point where there's this cryptic word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20... Paul is at the end of his days, he's writing to Timothy. He's obviously not going to be supernaturally delivered from prison. He's about to be executed. And he makes this cryptic statement. He says, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. And that's one of those we just sort of gloss over until you go, wait a minute, this is Paul. This is Paul who brought a man back from the dead. Paul was preaching and he preached too long. A guy fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. And Paul went down and rose him from the dead, raised him from the dead. And I had a preaching prophet say one time: "Just remember, if you kill him in the service, you got to be able to bring him back to life." That's a... And now one of his now one of his ministry cohorts is sick, and he leaves him sick because he couldn't heal him. This explains why the list in Ephesians differs from the list in 1 Corinthians because Ephesians was written much later than 1 Corinthians. And the list in Ephesians doesn't mention the miracle gifts. He says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But you don't see those miracles or healers So the question is, do miracles still occur? Yes, I believe they do. I've seen miracles occur. They just don't happen all the time. I've heard people say, man, you should get a miracle every day. If you get a miracle every day, you know what you call that? It's not a miracle, it's a normal. You see, what happens every day is normal. Miracles are miracles because they don't happen every day. And they're miraculous I believe they happen and I believe that God moves. The only miracle though that happens every day is the miracle of transformation that comes through salvation in Christ. That's the greatest miracle of all. That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, all the sin that you've done, all the junk you've done, all that stuff that eats you alive with guilt and shame that demoralizes you when you think about who you are, all of that stuff is taken to the cross with Jesus and it is uh, obliterated on the cross so that it is completely forgiven. And the Bible says you become a new creature. The old is passed away. All things are made new. That, my friend, is the greatest miracle of all. And that miracle happens all the time. Do people still get healed? Yes. People still get healed. I pray for people to get healed. I've been doing this for 40 something years. And I've always prayed for people. People are like, should you pray for them to get healed? I mean, shouldn't we pray for God's will? I'm like, God didn't tell me always to only pray for His will. I I pray that His will will be done. But it's Paul said, let your request be made known to God. So I'm going to let my request be made known to God. And my request is, God, would you heal this person right now? And I've prayed for people, and they've gotten better. And they've gotten healed. I believe in healing. I just don't necessarily believe in faith healers. Now, wait, I know some of you still do. Let's just agree to disagree. Don't send me a bunch of snarky emails, okay? <laughs> I mean, you believe that, that's, that's fine. But here's my thing with faith healers. If you have the gift of healing and you're a faith healer, why are you doing it in a sports arena? Why are you doing it at a convention center? Why aren't you down at the hospital where lots of people are sick, where it could really benefit from that? If you have the gift of healing, then go where sick people are and heal them. Truth of the matter is, God doesn't always heal everybody. Ask Trophimus, and even when He does heal us, we eventually die anyway. You see, here's the problem with signs and wonders. The problem with miracles is they only addict us to miracles. Look at uh, the feeding of the five thousand. Jesus fed five thousand with five loaves and two fish, right? What they want to do the next day? They wanted more bread. They said, hey, we'll believe you. We'll trust you. If you'll give us a sign, let us suggest a sign. Moses gave them manna in the wilderness. How about some more bread like we had yesterday? And Jesus gives them the, the bread of life sermon. He said, if you'll eat me, you'll never hunger again. And they left in droves. In fact, they left. So many of them left. He turned to his disciples and said, are you guys leaving too? And they said, where would we go? You're the only one with the words of life. That's the problem with miracles. I mean, look at the Jews. Their world was well stocked with miracles, and yet it's hard to find a more obstinate and disobedient people. Phil Yancey said, would a burst of miracles nourish faith? Not the kind of faith that God seems interested in. The Israelites give ample proof that signs may only addict us to signs, not to God. Here's what happens. Rather than faith being what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, faith starts to be like playing the lottery and God's the powerball. And people are like, I'm going to keep scratching until he pays off. Well, what if he doesn't pay off? Well, I guess I'm going to leave. See, God gave us something better than a miracle. He gave us the Bible. And the Bible, not signs and wonders, became the validation for God's will and work. Do miracles still occur? Absolutely. Does healing still occur? Absolutely. But the validation of the work of the Spirit is not signs and wonders, it's the Word of God. Now you notice too that in, the, in both the list in Ephesians and the list in Corinthians, there's the mention of the Apostle. You're like, why don't we have those? Well, here's the reason. Because an Apostle had to have a personal experience with Jesus Christ and the authority of the Apostle was on par with the authority of the Scripture. In fact, it was the Apostles that wrote the Scripture, and so as we got the scripture, we no longer needed the authority vested in the apostles. And so by the end of the last apostle, the apostle John, the, the ministry gift of the apostles had been done away with. And there was no mention of apostles between the end of the first century, 100 AD, and what we're seeing today where a few churches are picking that that idea back up. But they don't have the authority that the apostles had. You say, well, what about the apostolic fathers? They were called apostolic fathers because they were discipled by the apostles, not because they were apostles. And so we don't have that one. So it comes down to that list that Ephesians uh, gives us as the ministry gifts. And now the last one, the motivational gifts. Let's work through this. Romans 12. Unlike the manifestation gift, these motivation gifts tend to stay with us throughout our lives. Verse 6, so we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us to exercise them accordingly. Here they are. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And we have this list of seven gifts. You have the prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, prophecy was predictive, not so much in the New Testament. John the Baptist was a a prophet, but he didn't predict so much as he proclaimed. It's not so much predictive as it is prescriptive. The prophet is one who declares truth. And one of the marks of the prophet is he is interested in immediate change, and he's calling people constantly to immediate change. In fact, his words are often cutting and divisive, and he sees things in black and white and the prophet will often reveal a lot of himself in order to get you to come to that point of change because for the prophet, the primary motivation is I want you to hear the truth of God so that you will change. The servant, the root of the word is deacon, this is someone who takes care of physical needs. They're not so much uh, interested in the spiritual aspect of it as they are in meeting the physical needs, and they're good at it. Servants remember anniversaries. They remember birthdays. One of the funny things about servants is they often know your need before you know them, and so servants can sometimes appear to be pushy because they're trying to meet a need you don't even know you have. And one of the frustrations of servants is when you fail to recognize the importance of service. Because sometimes it seems as if that's not as spiritual as some of the other gifts. And a servant resents that. And then there's the teacher. And the teacher is more concerned with the preservation of truth than the presentation of truth. And the teacher will often... Conflict with the prophet because he's wanting to be sure everything is clearly in context in the way it was meant to be said, and so the teacher is often uh, uh, trying to make sure that we stay close to the truth. And then the exhorter is more like the counselor. That word is parakaleo. It's where we get the word paraclete. One calls alongside, and the exhorter is the one. Unlike the prophet, he's not interested in immediate change. In fact, exhorters often are, are suspect. Of immediate change because they're looking for long-term change. They don't really want you to make a decision you're not ready to make, and so exhorters often have steps of correction. Look, if you'll do these five things, we'll get your marriage back on track. If you'll do these 10 things, you can overcome this, this issue. If you'll do this and that, and they step it out in steps of correction. The giver's the person who's interested in funding the projects. They're generally good with money, and they love to see other people give, and givers are often turned off by big money pleas. You know, somebody said, We never do big money pleas at North Monroe to speak of, you know, why? Two things because it turns off non believers and it turns off the givers. People give to vision. If we present a vision, people will support it. We've seen that happen, right? If we're faithful to the truth, it's not about money. But our givers are the ones who realize, hey, I'm good with money. I make money happen. And money can be used to support ministry. And because of that, sometimes they may come across as materialistic or some other way. But it couldn't be done without the givers. The leader is the guy who understands, the, and that word means to set things right. He sees the big picture. He sees what nobody else sees, and he understands how different people can contribute to that. And so he's using people, according to their gift mix, to come together, to do together what they couldn't do individually. And then the mercy shower, that's mostly concerned with compassion and the heart. They're not really concerned with uh, with uh, 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 change as they are with feelings, and I just hate it that you feel bad about that. And what can I do? They're, they're gonna, they're the ones that are gonna cry with you. They're the ones that are gonna sit by you. They're gonna take your burden and carry it with you. And you know what's funny? The mercy shores often clash with the prophets because what are the prophets doing? Man, he's got the sword. Whack, whack, whack. And the mercy shores like, it's okay. It's okay. Don't, don't listen to him. He's, he, you know, he's just, he's just rude. Just, it, it'll be okay, you know. And what's funny is mercy shores often marry prophets. And so here's what happens. Imagine somebody walks through the lunchroom, drops a tray of food. Here's how they react. The prophet says, I've done that before because there was sin in my life. And maybe there's some sin in your life. What's God trying to tell you because you dropped your tray? The servant doesn't say anything. She just rushes with a rag to clean it up. The teacher says, the the reason this happened is you have too much weight on one side and not enough weight on the other side. And what you got to do is you got to learn how to balance this thing out. The exhorter says, you know, we can get this cleaned up in five easy steps. The giver says, here's some money for another meal. The leader says, Greg, grab a mop. Susan, grab another tray. Johnny, get a trash can. And the mercy shower says, I'm so sorry. You must feel terrible. Can I pray with you? And that's how the spiritual gifts work. And everyone has one. If you're in Christ, you've got that gift, that motivational gift, that passion gift. You say, well, how come I can't see it? Because you've never used it. You will not discover your spiritual gift until you engage in ministry, and then you find out where your passions are. So here's how it works. You take your passion gift, your motivational gift, and you you use that in a ministry gift. And when you use your motivational gift in a ministry gift, say you're a mercy shower and and you've been given the assignment to teach. Now you're teaching. You're going to teach from the perspective of a mercy shower. You're not trying to be a prophet. You're being who you are. And as you teach from the perspective of a mercy shower, what happens? There's a manifestation of the Spirit, and somebody gets a word of knowledge, or somebody gets a word of wisdom, or somebody gets faith, or somebody gets healed. And when we do that together, we become the body of Christ. The key is to be who God made you to be, and let other people be what God made them to be, and together we'll be more than we could ever be. But here's the thing we've got to remember. While the gifts validate our worth, they weren't given for our benefit. They were not given for our benefits. The the gifts were given for the benefit of the world. The body of Christ is here to reveal Jesus to the world. Archbishop William Temple said, the church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The focus was never meant to be selfish. Our job isn't to huddle together and gaze into, into our own navels and try to come up with some glorious understanding of who we are. I love what evangelist Louis Palau said. He said, the church is like manure. Pile it together and it stinks up the neighborhood. Spread it out and it enriches the world. Mm. Graphic but true. So here it is. You have a gift. Discover your gift. Find out why God made you. Value your gift. Don't compare yourself with someone else and say, well, I'm not that, and I don't have that. It doesn't matter. God gave you the gift for you to be you. And use your gift. That's the most important thing. And that's our commitment today. We need to make a commitment. Here, will you share this commitment with me? Here it is, plain and simple. God, today, I'm going I'm to purpose to discover my gift. Now, to do that, you've got to be willing to engage in ministry. So I want to discover my gift, and God, once I discover it, I'm not going to compare myself, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to be resentful or bitter towards someone else. Maybe they've got something I don't have. I'm going to see the value in the gift that you've given me, and I purpose to put that gift to work for your glory. Will you make that commitment today? I don't think any change happens without a commitment, so that's the commitment we need to make today. But let me say this too. You may have come here today looking for a miracle The only miracle that occurs every day is the miracle of transformation that comes through Jesus Christ. And I don't care what you've done and I don't care where you've been. It doesn't matter anymore because Jesus took all of that to the cross and he wants to offer you forgiveness and transformation. The old becomes new. Do you want to be made new today? Well, as soon as we're done here this morning, as soon as we're done, I want to challenge you to go to the belonging area on either side of me over here and talk to one of our guys. And share your story and let Him know where you are. And He will help you to discover a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Let's pray together. Everybody pray. This is a moment of commitment. And here's our commitment. God, I I purpose, and you can just say this to the Father. Father, I thank You for this gift. And I purpose that I'm going to discover my spiritual gift. I'm going to discover that passion that You put in me. And I'm going to value that gift. And I'm going to use that gift for your glory. Father, thank you for our gifts. Thank you as they help us to understand the value of each other and how we can elevate, even when people are different from us, even when they have a different perspective from us, that we can value the unique contribution. You've made every one of us unique, and you've made every one of us incomplete. And we need each other. And Father, I want to pray for those that are without Christ this morning. They need the miracle of transformation that in this moment, they would just say yes to You. They would just, on their face before You, God, I don't even know all the words to say, but here here it is, the best I know how, I give You my life. Thank You for Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. I confess my sin and I receive Him as Savior in this moment. Father, we thank You for Your Word in Romans 10, 9 and 10. It says that if... We confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead. We shall be saved. And I thank you that salvation comes into this place right now because of you. And we thank you for our gifts. May we use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.